0: As I mentioned this morning, we uh, do the second part of Christmas where we talked about John the Baptist and his mission and his uh, expectation of Christ and what he desired to see, and now we move to the actual birth of Christ. And I wanted to sort of do this uh, with the perspective of two prophets. We have John the Baptist and you have Simeon towards the end laying out the significance of Christ entrance into history. And as Simeon (coughs) has his perspective on Christ, it becomes a rather uh, disappointing prophecy in the sense that he speaks of a sword cutting the heart of Mary. Then we think about the advent of the Son, We don't necessarily think about the significance of the cross or uh, those sorts of things that are going on. And so as Simeon, someone who's a pessimist, just sort of you know, the wet blanket and uh, being the rain on the parade? Or does he really have a proper perspective of Christ and uh, a significant uh, understanding of his mission? And so like this morning, I want to follow uh, those questions of who is Jesus, what is his mission, and what does he have to do with Christmas or what is his Christmas association? And so first, the question of who is Jesus now, we covered the expectation this morning with John the Baptist, <coughs> expecting judgment, expecting glory, um, expecting a king to come and flex his might. And, and by and large, when we think about the mission of Christ and the broad picture, that is fundamentally what happens. I mean, God does show his strength through weakness, but it doesn't necessarily manifest itself in a way that we would like it, um, because our expectation, John's expectation, the disciples' expectation is that Christ is going to enter history, and as he enters history, he throws off all the foreign powers. So in our mind, he's coming to make war, he's coming to bring in glory, and he's coming to show his power right now. In fact, when you think about the name Jesus that's given to him by Gabriel the angel, The name Jesus has a very significant name, and it also is a figure in covenant history. Uh, We think of Joshua, who goes into the land, who's a successor to Moses. Uh, You think of Moses as being the prophet, leading Israel through the wilderness, dying on Mount Nebo, and then you have Joshua taking the reins, bringing Israel into the land, showing the mighty judgment. So when you hear the name Jesus, you think Joshua, you think sword, you think going into the land You think triumph. And so when when we hear that, we say, okay, well then what what has Luke told us about this this Christ, about this Jesus and his definition? Because Jesus is Joshua. Joshua, the Hebrew word or Hebrew name that means Yahweh saves. Joshua, the transliteration of that name. Or Jesus, the transliteration of that name into the Greek. So Jesus and Joshua is the same name. When we think about what Luke has said... He's mentioned in terms of 1 verse 17 that there's a messenger that's going to go before the Lord and turn their hearts to the Lord. Gabriel says he's going to be great, son of the Most High. You start hearing these titles and you can understand the expectation of his might. His name Jesus, as we mentioned. Yahweh saves. Think of Joshua going into the land, taking up his sword, engaging in holy war. And so when you think of Jesus, you say, well, this this is obviously going to be the Son of God. He's going to flex his might. He's going to show that God is triumphant over all things. Nothing's going to stand in his way. We just have to wait a little while, and then we're going to go to Jerusalem and have glory. But We find that that's not really what happens. In fact, in terms of the drama of John's birth with Zachariah, Elizabeth, the presentation there of him losing his voice, uh, being silent, Uh, The interaction at his birth and the exchange of his name and what they're going to name him. There's more details where it's almost like John the Baptist becomes more significant than Christ. And, And there's a reason for that. It's communicating what the Song of Mary is telling us that Christ is going to usurp and overturn. He's going to humble the proud and he's going to exalt the humbled. Now, when we hear that, we say, well, what does that look like? What does that mean? Well, it means that when you hear the the birth of Christ in the first seven verses, it doesn't seem like he's all that successful, to be honest. I mean, we have this decree going out from Caesar Augustus. So this decree going out, if you're familiar with some of the critics of this passage, uh, they'll say, well, there wasn't this international decree that we can find, and therefore, historically, this is troubling. The reality is, when you have this decree going out from Caesar Augustus, it seems that it's a decree that impacts the people of Judah, the people of Bethlehem, uh, some of the people in the northern kingdom. And so, in in terms of world history, these aren't significant places. But everyone will concede, well, there are decrees that went out, and this was a census that was to take place. So we, we have to understand Luke, as he's a theologian, and a historian, he's writing a theological story. He wants us to understand a theological narrative. So he wants us to think about who Caesar is and who Christ is. And we understand that it's not presented as God driving the narrative. Right? This is intended for us to have a little bit of trouble here, a little unrest. Caesar Augustus, ruler of the Roman world, is the one who calls forth uh, for this registration, which means that now Christ is conceding this registration. His parents are, <coughs> excuse me, are conceding the ruler of this age. So Caesar Augustus has accomplished what Christ is supposed to do. He has already established world power, he has established world rule, and he has established uh, world peace which is what christ is supposed to do as a messiah so when you hear this the intention is for us to say well what, what is this christ going to do i mean if he's the one who's going to overturn everything how can this happen and so when when we find him coming to this place to undergo this uh, this registration submit to it we find that while they were there it's time for her to give birth We find in verse 7 something else that's troubling. Uh, It's translated, there's no room for them in the inn. It's literally no room for them in the room or in a room. Uh, The implication is, in terms of peasant hospitality, you would have sort of a stable and a house attached to the stable. Uh, So the intention would be that if you have a guest, that your guest would uh, stay in a room or have some place to stay other than the stable with the animals. So it's not necessarily that this family's rejecting or poor hosts. The point is there's so many people that have come to this town that they have to sort of clear out the stable and put the people in the stable. Now, the problem with this, and again, you can read Kenneth Bailey on this. He's done a lot of work in terms of uh, this peasant-type hospitality. But one of the things I'd say about Bailey is he's missing the thrust of the text. Because Luke wants us to understand the absolute humility of Christ. If he really is a king, he should come to a palace. If he's really in the line of of David, the line of Judah, he should have a palace. He shouldn't have to rely on peasant hospitality amongst the low of the low. And so it's testifying to the absolute humility of this Christ. And it's intended for us to sort of say, well, what is this Christ going to do? If, if his name means Yahweh saves, if he's like Joshua, Caesar has accomplished world peace, what is left for this one to do? <laughs> and so this is where we wonder, well, what about his mission? Well, we've covered John the Baptist being an Elijah-like reformer, going before uh, declaring uh, the reality of this judgment associating Christ with the day of the Lord rather significant events. Uh, when we read Luke 2, verses 1 through 7, it doesn't seem very glorious. It doesn't seem that he's one who's going to bring in the day of the Lord. And so one wonders what's going to happen. Well, in terms of the narrative, as you go down, <coughs> you, <coughs> excuse me, you find in verses 8 through 14, the angels praising God. So now this is something that's sort of a twist in the story, isn't it? You have a a child who's given birth to in a stable. Now it doesn't necessarily mean that it's unsanitary and it's unclean. Uh, Most likely the animals are moved out, that it's cleaned up and it's fit for guests, if you will. So it's not that it's necessarily unsanitary, but it tells us that he is a peasant, associated with peasants. But then when you have these angels all of a sudden appearing out of the sky, praising God, (coughs) declaring the good news, declaring the Savior, declaring that the mission of Christ has not been derailed. This is where you look at this and you say, well, what is going on? We have a, a young virgin who's given birth to this child that's been conceived by the Holy Spirit. We, we have a song that she gives about humbling the exalted and exalting the humble. He's born to a peasantry, and now we have this angelic army. So it seems to us from a pragmatic point of view, if this is really Jesus the Savior, if John the Baptist is duly called, which, which we believe he is, he certainly is, called by God to be a prophet and a forerunner, why doesn't the Lord just send Christ as a commander like Joshua, conjuring up this heavenly army and go and take Rome, take the world, show his might, do what he's supposed to do. And so when we hear this, we say, well, that's rather strange. How can this be the case? And then when we go on, we find the prophet Simeon, as I've mentioned. And the prophet Simeon looks upon the Christ child. Now, this again is something rather a uh, head scratching to say the least. Because this is a child, like any other peasant child being circumcised. And, and we have here the the rule for redemption: a turtle dove and a two young pigeons. This is going back to Leviticus 12, or basically, if you have a family that's impoverished and they're in poverty, in order for someone to um, have their firstborn child and and for the child to to live there has to be a redemption that's offered and for a peasant family they are to offer these turtle doves and young pigeons so the lord shows us compassion his mercy for these people with with poor means they can basically take these birds that cost nothing offer them in the place of the child so the child can be redeemed and consecrated unto the lord so again, if you're a bystander and you're watching this family come into the temple with his infant, they're offering turtle doves and young pigeons, and, and not a, a magnificent animal or something prestigious to say the least. You're not going to give this a second look. You're going to say, "Oh, a poor peasant family. Well, hopefully, they can get home." You know that that might go through your mind or something along those lines, but you're not going to think wow, there is a significant family that holds a child who is going to establish and and confirm all of God's redemptive promises. That's not what's going to go through your mind. It's going to just be an ordinary day, just another day in the temple, nothing extraordinary at all. But we find that this man, Simeon, is presented here watching this, and he says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. So the implication here is that Simeon's an an elderly man. His departure is not necessarily leaving the temple, but is graduating from this life to the life to come. He's departing in peace. Significant statement. Because this is a shalom of God. See, we talked about Caesar establishing world peace, but Caesar we should probably say establish world tolerance. In other words, he made it so people wouldn't want to go to war because she wouldn't want to go to war against Rome. But it's not like there's a true wholeness. It's not like you, you really say, man, I love Caesar. He's great. It's more like, you know what? It's better just to put up with things the way they are than to rock the boat. And so I'd say Caesar established world tolerance. But for Simeon to say you have allowed your servant to depart in shalom. In other words, (coughs) he's departing in the fullness of what was promised. He's departing in the wholeness of being made right with God. And again, this is a peasant family with his infant who has just been, where the redemption has been paid legally so this child can go home. But as he goes on, He says, my eyes have seen your salvation. I mean, think about how absurd this statement sounds in terms of a human perspective. Peasant family, peasant child, and he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. In other words, as he looks at Christ, he knows there is more than what meets the eye. This is a God-man who has entered history. And as he enters history, what is his... What is his purpose? Well, it's for all peoples, a revelation to the Gentile, and for the glory to your people Israel. So Simeon has an understanding of what we heard from Isaiah 40 this morning, that he understands Isaiah 40, Isaiah 61, where Christ uses that to characterize his mission, that it's not just a mission that is for the Jewish people and to build an elite class of individuals. But the mission of Christ is to fundamentally secure and redeem the peoples from the nations. And to see to it that they see the light. That's the truth of the gospel. The truth of redemption that was promised. And so the the mission of Christ here, it's telling us that there's more here than meets the eye. It's something more than just a Joshua-like individual going into the land with the sword to make war. And so, what does this tell us then about Christmas and this Christmas association? <coughs> Excuse me again. Again, the obvious answer is Christmas, Christ. So, we think of a celebration of Christ and his entrance into history. But there's something else about Christ and what he's doing, it's telling us about the nature of the kingdom that he brings. You see, he could have his disciples trained up to fight. He could command the heavenly angels to come down and to make war. Christ can actually, as God, capture the whole Roman army and have them turn on Rome. This is what Christ could do. So in terms of of accomplishing a, a mission from a worldly point of view or a human perspective, that would be easy. His disciples could fight. He could command the angels to fight. They wouldn't just have to sing praises to him. And again, they're singing praises to God in a field in front of shepherds who have no credibility in terms of society. And so you think about that even and say, well, what's going on in this Christmas kingdom? But it tells us something. Christ doesn't want to overturn this age through conventional means. In other words, through war, like what Caesar does. As I mentioned, we we shouldn't really say that Caesar establishes world peace. He establishes world tolerance. You learn to tolerate one another. You tolerate Rome. You're not really at peace with Rome. You're not really celebrating Rome. You just sort of think it's better than the alternative. It's better than absolute anarchy. So you live within it. So it's not, that would be what we'd call just a mediocre kingdom. It's it's better than, than what it could be. You know, it could be a lot worse. The kingdom that Christ brings is a kingdom that is here to establish true healing. You see, the promise of Christ, as Simeon goes on in verse 34, he's appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. And so the the point of, of Christ is much like the song of Mary. You can compare that to the song of Moses when you think of Israel after going through the Red Sea of a celebration of God overturning this world, the world order. Those who are in power think they're prestigious and significant are those that are not going to be prestigious and significant in terms of the kingdom. Those who are humble are going to actually find their significance uh, and and importance in this Redeemer who comes. And so his, his warfare is something more, something greater in terms of this kingdom of Christmas that he brings. Now, as Christ comes down, there's something else we can think about in the mission of Christ. This is one of the things that theologians debate. Christ could have come as an adult, right? He could have come as a mature adult. He could have commanded the armies like we've talked about. He could have uh, taken the Roman army captive by his command. He is God, after all. He can do that. He could command his angelic army to go to war. And he could basically have this done in a matter of moments and go back to heaven and be finished. So in terms of coming together at Christmas, why doesn't Christ just come as the adult? Why doesn't he just knock Herod off the throne? Why why doesn't he just take out Caesar Augustus? Why doesn't he just flex his might? Because we have to understand the nature of this kingdom at Christmas, in order for Christ to usurp and to be truly countercultural, something that we love saying in our day and age, but he's truly countercultural, that Christ has to get to the core of the problem. The problem's not just the foreign rulers, the problem's not just outward sins, the problem isn't just oppression, the problem isn't just horrible things that happen in this age. The problem is something that's fundamentally deeper. It's at the core. Christ has to come to humble himself, to live up to his name, to be Yahweh saves, to come and to save his people from their sins. And so it's not just Christ going to war with the world and knocking off the foreign authorities. He could do that very easily. Christ is coming into history to lay down his life so that he's the one who can take it up again. And so as we mentioned this morning with John the Baptist, the fundamental problem John the Baptist has is he assumes that Christ is coming to bring in the final glory, that Christ is here to establish Armageddon. What Christ is really doing is coming into history to establish the victory of Armageddon. Not to bring it about, but to establish the outcome of history without bringing the full end of history. You see, if if Christ is one who, who doesn't do this, uh, then we got a problem. Because then he's not coming to be a light to the Gentiles. He's not coming to call us out of exile. Uh, because then the judgment would have happened, and we're those who don't share in the blessings of his kingdom. And so this is where we return again to Simeon. And when he says to Mary, because as he interacts with her, he gives her the assurance his child's going to be there for the rising and the falling of many. He's going to overturn things. He's going to prepare the way for his people. He's going to establish uh, this kingdom. But he tells her something else, that there's a sword that's going to pierce to her own soul. Now, when you hear that, you say, well, what, what is Simeon saying? That's kind of depressing here's a young mother who's just paid the redemption for the child no doubt the joy of having this child and the significance of this child hearing these wonderful and marvelous things and the testimony of the shepherds treasuring these things in her heart so it, it means that she, she really values how the lord has used her as a servant but this call for her to realize the sword cutting her soul. This means that at the very essence of who she is, she is going to be torn. She is going to experience the true pain of what the common curse lays out. It's not just pain and childbearing, but it's the ultimate pain and childbearing. She is going to witness her son's death. She's going to witness his betrayal, and she's going to witness the gruesomeness of it. And so Simeon here is preparing her for the fate that she is about to undergo. And so this this message here is not all, all positive. It's saying, listen, in the mission of Christ, this isn't going to be something that's very positive, something that's great in terms of what you're going to witness. You're going to have a deep mourning, you're going to have a deep pain, and you're going to watch this child die. And so when you hear this, In terms of this peasant child it it leaves us with with another moment of thinking well what is the point of this mission what is the point of this christmas child in this humiliation if there's going to be this this radical grief associated with him it seems that all is lost but he goes on to say the thoughts for many hearts may be revealed in other words yes there's that mourning and it is sorrowful i mean we don't Experience it at the level of Mary seeing her son upon a cross. I mean, there there is something real that's being communicated there in the text. But at the same time, the reality of Christ being beaten and dying on our behalf, and this is the purpose of him entering history, is a tragedy. It's tragic that sin is so heinous, and this is what he has to do. But the reality is, he is going to come back as a triumphant savior, that the hearts will be revealed. Now, in terms of of how this kingdom goes on and how these swords are are presented, we think about how Christ even interacts with his own disciples. Whereas he enters history, his disciples are there at the Last Supper, and they want to know, you know, what what about this kingdom? What about these swords? And Christ tells them to go and get their sword, right? He says, get your swords, because now, you know, you went out without a money sack. Get your sword. And when they present him a couple swords. Say, "Is this enough?" He says, "Yes, it's enough." But then we have that interaction where Christ uh, is being arrested, and Luke records the cutting off of the ear of the high priest's servant. Jesus heals it and rebukes the disciples and say, "Who it is?" We find out it's Peter in another account. So in terms of of this, you say, well, then then what's going on in the kingdom? You're saying, don't have a sword, but do have a sword. This is not how the kingdom comes. The point of all this, and and as we put this together and wrap it up in terms of the Christmas story, in terms of the mission of Christ, Christ is laying out that the kingdom does not come through conventional means. That's what he wants us to understand. This kingdom only comes through the the Son Who has been rejected by his own people, a son who has been kicked to the curb, a son who didn't really have a place to stay. Because what does Christ go on to say in Luke 9? Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This world is not his fundamental place. And so when he's talking to his disciples about the swords, as some people cite, it's not about a kingdom of conventional warfare. It's a kingdom of understanding that there's going to be unrest even after the mission of Christ. And so, so often, we can read the story, we can think about Christ, we can think about him exalting the humble, humbling the exalted. And sometimes we can look around and say, well, when does this happen? Uh, It doesn't seem like this is always transpiring as we would expect. Well, Luke's telling us and assuring us and Christ is telling us, this is not something that should alarm us. Christ himself experienced the suffering. This is the purpose of entering into history. This is why Christ comes. He knows the heinousness of this world. He knows oppression. He knows a kangaroo court firsthand. He knows what it is to be unjustly accused. He knows what it is to be sentenced to death when he's done no wrong. He understands all these things. But as Christ enters history, he's not doing this on a failed mission. He's doing this to fulfill the mission that the Father has given him. That he must suffer unto glory. (coughs) That the very birth of Christ presents that mission story. One who humbles himself, not only in terms of taking on the flesh, but humbles himself in being born of a peasant family. Not on the prestigious of the line of David, but sort of on the wrong side of the tracks of the family that's rejected. The one who could call the heavenly army, but he doesn't. And the heavenly army sings praises to the outcasts of the world. The humble, the, the, the ones that you easily ignore, the shepherds. Not people that you normally uh, run around with in, in your circles. And so these are not individuals that you hold up as prestigious. And so Christ is showing his mission is one of suffering unto glory. As Christ goes about his mission, this bearing the sword, is Christ undergoing the very sanction of death in our place. Christ understands entering into history leads to death. But the story of his mission does not lead and end only in humiliation. This is what we also have to take from the Song of Mary in terms of Luke's theology. That the humbled will be exalted and we will find our exaltation in him as we humble ourselves before his throne of grace. And so in conclusion then, is this man Simeon some sort of a pessimist? Some sort of an individual that just wants to sort of be that wet blanket and, and be the Debbie Downer on Mary's great day? Or is he telling us something rather profound about Christ's mission? I think, first of all, we have to realize Simeon's not being a pessimist. He's not laying out the worst-case scenario. He's laying out for us the reality of what the mission of Christ is. A child who's been rejected by his own people, even at his birth, to a child who is rejected by the world, sent to death, And Mary's going to grieve that death in a very real way. But Simeon also tells us about the assurance that Christ is going to be the light to the Gentiles. He's going to be the one who calls us out of our darkness. He's the one where Simeon looks upon him and he sees the true shalom of God. We can't miss this other side of his prophecy. Because Simeon understands that the mission of Christ does not just end in this humiliation and death. It also ends in the exaltation and glorification. And in this exaltation and glorification, we know that as Christ has humbled himself, we will be exalted in Christ. That's the assurance of this. So when we read these seven verses in the opening of Luke 2, these seven verses are not intended to discourage us, but to remind us. Christ is bringing us to a place better than Rome, bringing us beyond a kingdom merely of tolerance, where he just puts up with us, tolerates us, and we say, well, you know, we have Christ, but, you know, it it could could be worse. That's not the kingdom that he brings. He's bringing us a kingdom that's the fullness of glory. He's bringing us into his heavenly palace, into the heavenly throne room. It's not a kingdom of tolerance, but a kingdom of true shalom where God's people enter into the presence of God, knowing that we are made whole in our Redeemer. That's what Simeon's fundamentally looking toward. And as we hear this elderly old prophet celebrating God, he's not being an old curmudgeon. He's he's not just complaining. He's saying, praise be to you. You're allowing your servant to depart in peace and to look upon the very means of redemption the very agent, the very one who confirms the prophetic words that you have spoken as the incarnate word of God. Let us then, as God's people, go in this peace of knowing that we are the Gentile people called out of exile on a sojourn to enter into the Lord's glorious heavenly rest because Christ has humbled himself when Christ is the one who says, foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, he's not saying that to discourage us. He's telling us that he's bringing us beyond this age, looking beyond this world, assuring us that this age of sin, suffering, struggle, hardship is put behind us ultimately in him. That as he has died, he has been raised to life. And as he has been raised to life, he is coming to bring us into his glorious kingdom. But he continues to shepherd us as a great king, as a great shepherd, as a great priest who has laid down his life for us. Let us then, as we sojourn through this age, see our anchor point in heaven, in Christ Jesus, the one who has been humbled, has now been exalted. The one as we humble ourselves in him, we are guaranteed to be exalted because of him as our shield and defender. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning, or six in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archived sermon series on our website urcbelgrade.com or subscribe to our current sermon series through Most Common Podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.